0: I think my goal is just to energize people get them motivated to do things that they wouldn't have normally before coming to business school because having worked straight for 12 years I know that this time in my life will never come back and I just want to get myself as like out there as much as possible and I want all of you to do the same because I know for most of us this is probably the last time we're going to be in school unless you're going to get another master's degree or a PhD.
1: But I think for me the message would be like I heard some students have barely met anyone. Even though they're in DC, they've, they've like met probably two or three people because they take it for granted you know, that you're in DC or the city. Uh, I, I would just like to encourage the community to just reach out. And you know if you have problems or anything, talk to your friend, set up that date for the hangout. In a year from now, we'll be graduating. We won't have that chance to meet all these incredible people that were selected by Georgetown. So make the most out of it. Go out, meet those people, make that connection. It'll be rewarding.
2: Welcome to season one of McDonough Talks, where we seek to build community through storytelling. On today's Roundtable episode, Sam and I will be joined by Christine Kim and Andrew Mulya. Christine Kim is a first year MBA candidate at the McDonough School of Business here at Georgetown. Her focus of studies on strategy and issues pertaining to corporate social responsibility. Prior to business school, Christine was an international correspondent for Reuters in South Korea, and later worked in global communications for Samsung Electronics. After graduating, Christine sees herself remaining in the tech industry. And Andrew, hailing all the way from Indonesia, is a first year MBA student at Georgetown. Prior to the MBA, Andrew was a corporate lawyer at Baker McKinsey Indonesia, before continuing on to consult for the Indonesian government in adopting digital solutions. Post MBA, he seeks to specialize in data analytics and big data when consulting for companies and governments. Before we bring Christine and Andrew in, I want to take this time to introduce my co-host, Sam Speed. We chatted last time with him, but Sam is due a proper introduction. Sam is a first-year international MBA student here at MSP. After graduating from the University of Edinburgh, Sam was a communications consultant for the United Nations in Rome before working for Yahoo, Verizon, and Twitch in frontline sales and ad tech roles. He's here to pivot into business development and sales strategy and is interning at Salesforce over the summer. So, Sam, I just wanted to chat with you about that. That sounds like an amazing opportunity and congratulations on, on that position and yeah, how'd that come about and, and just tell us what you're expecting this summer.
3: Thank you, Mike. Pleased to be here. Yeah, I was super pleased. It was I think for many of us in the program, it was a long, dark winter of the recruitment process. And yeah, I was kind of pulling my hair out around kind of what opportunities were going to be made available and whether I was even going to have an internship, I was kind of hitting up friends in the area for maybe working at a startup unpaid, but yeah, I had a couple of vines in the fire and Salesforce was one of them Salesforce. I'm pleased to say was really my number one company. When I was applying and before I even settled on Georgetown, I knew that when I was going to the U S do my MBA, Salesforce was where I wanted to be. So really happy. The role itself is in uh, the channels and alliances team for MuleSoft. MuleSoft was a Salesforce acquisition, which deals with API integrations. It basically is just going to be liaising with their partners and doing a kind of audit of their partner strategy, which is quite tied to what I used to do in sales in London. So, yeah, super pleased, super excited to be part of this company. It's it's a company that's very like humanitarian at its heart. It really seeks to do good through business, and that's something that was very important to me. So, yeah, super excited.
2: Is it going to be remote or are you going to be out west? Where Where will you be? It's going to be remote. I'd
3: initially thought maybe I'd be out in California, but uh, the person I'm reporting into is based in New York. She's the head of like a global team with people in Sydney and uh, another person in Dusseldorf and someone else in the Bay Area. So yeah, please, please that I'm going to be on East Coast time. Please that I'm going to be here in DC with all the friends over the summer. Yeah, it's going to be fun.
2: Yeah, again, congratulations. That sounds like a very exciting opportunity. What did it come up like? Like I know it came late in the process, but from the time you applied to the time you got the offer, did it happen quick? Do you know what,
3: I'd put put out a couple of uh, applications to Salesforce, which had been turned down kind of out of hand, sadly. I think maybe I was a bit late in the process. And then this MuleSoft one came up kind of late in the day and I applied for it. And then once I applied, I had, gosh, I had three interviews. I had a screening interview, then like an hour long interview with uh, one of the team members, then a final like 30 minute interview with the boss. And then, yeah, it was, was, was made an offer kind of like right after that final interview. So yeah, pleased to say that after, after that whole process, it was quite gratifying to just have just like a quick <laughs> a quick offer and be done with it.
2: Any other Georgetown folks joining you that you know of, or are you r- flying solo?
3: Stephanie Ellis is joining. Uh, Stephanie is in Blue Cohort. So she was made quite early on an offer in Salesforce's customer success team uh and what she did was set up a kind of happy hour which you know as soon as she called when that i had the offer she kind of invited me to uh there's there's also uh Medi as well uh in the international uh, in the international cohort uh Medi actually. and
2: a saxo with me i love meddy
3: so, Medi, so Medi, uh sat next to me in international class and we were kind of buddies we didn't know each other very well and then through kirby Horwitz, who's a second year she helped coach me with a lot of these Salesforce interviews because she was made an offer. Mehdi had spoken to her during his interview process. Kirby connected the two of us and now the three of us, yeah, we're headed to Salesforce. We jumped on a Salesforce happy hour drinks last night. Yeah, it's just been, it's just kind of been a whirlwind since I got my offer. Super pleased that I'm going to be there with some, with some Hoyers. And yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a fun summer. That's,
2: that's super exciting. And shout out to Kirby. Uh, She's a rock star. She helped me prep for my Deloitte interview, which I got an offer for, and, and she did as well. So shout out to her.
3: It's been, it's been so, it's been so like amazing that despite all of this, you know, this virtual environment, the fact that we've not really been able to network, that there are still, you know, opportunities for second years to help coach and build bonds and network. It's been, it's been really, it's been, it's been really great.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for sharing, Sam. And congratulations again on the Salesforce internship. Super excited for you, and you're going to crush it this summer. And I think now we can turn to Christine and Andrew, and while we want to hear all about your experiences here at McDonough, but before we get to there, I'd love to have you guys share a little bit about your background, and not just your business background, but you know your family history, and, and how many brothers and sisters you have, and where you grew up, and um, what your childhood was like. So Christine, I'll throw it to you.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me and Andrew on the show. It's it's great. So yeah, just to tell you a little bit about my background, which is not my TMAY. So I was born in Seoul, South Korea, but my parents moved me and my sister. I have a younger sister to the United States when I was in kindergarten and we lived here. So my family kind of moved around. My dad, like, so we all moved to the United States because my dad was getting his PhD. Um, My sister and I were actually the only non-white kids at our elementary school in Ohio. And uh, we moved back to South Korea in the late 90s, and that's where I was up until last year before I had to move here to go to business school. But my family, the rest of my family, they moved back to the US, like, I think it's been nine, 10 years now, and they all live in Texas. But I choose to stay behind in Seoul because I already had a career and I was already working in journalism. And so that's why I chose to stay.
2: So you were in the States for grade school. What was it like being the only non-white student? I imagine it had to be really tough.
0: So I didn't realize it back then. But in hindsight, I definitely realized I experienced some situations that were really cringeworthy, uh, I guess. For instance, there was a time when one of the teachers, she was a social science teacher, and she asked for everyone who was an American citizen to raise their hand. And I remember feeling so awkward and so left out being the only person who had my hand down. Now, I know right now that totally wouldn't fly in public schools, but this was a thing that happened back
2: then. Wow, that is cringeworthy. I mean, how can an adult do that? That just makes me so mad. I can't imagine you as a elementary school student, how that made you feel, man, I'm, I'm so sorry you had to go through that.
0: I guess it was the norm back then because people didn't really think um, much of it, like back in the nineties, I guess.
3: Well, if I could ask, what was the context? Was that, was this like a history class? Yeah. 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 Okay.
0: Yeah. It was definitely, yeah. I think it was like introducing the founding fathers or something like that.
2: Jeez. That's so brutal. Christine, again, sorry that you had to go through something like that, and thank you for sharing that story. Now, this is an awkward transition, but I do want to bring Andrew into the mix here. Andrew, I know you're from Indonesia, and you just arrived in the States for the second semester. Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in Indonesia.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think similar to Christine, I'm also a third culture kid, sort of. Because although I was born in Jakarta, Indonesia, I actually spent uh, kindergarten until grade six in New Zealand, Auckland. And that's, that's where I spent, uh, like, my family's also divided between Indonesia and New Zealand. And then, so by grade six, we went back to Indonesia. I went to an international school. Went through the whole shebang, did my law degree prior to the MBA, worked as a lawyer. And then going to the MBA, it's like, I, I felt like to bring change to my country, I would need you know that, that higher education, that more knowledge. And so that's why I'm here. Where did you go to law school? Uh, so it's a local Christian university in Indonesia.
2: Would you have to go to law school here in the States to be able to practice law here?
1: So I, I think, you know, it goes back to the whole way back when during the French and the Rome, and I could go deep into details, but basically there's a division between common law and civil law and most Asian countries are civil law and more, most like common British, American, you guys are like using the common law system with like precedent and judge like, yeah.
2: Gotcha. That's a big difference. Yeah. Did you come from a big family?
1: Yeah, pretty big. My mom has three sister and a brother. And then I think most of them are in New Zealand. And they only like my mom and I think one uncle's in, back in Jakarta, Indonesia.
2: Any brothers and sisters?
1: Uh, I have a, I have one big sister. Uh, she went to Melbourne for her architect degree. She's actually with me right now, visiting for a while.
3: Am I right in saying because Andrew was remote for mods one and two, and then he arrived in January because you got your place near me in DuPont. Lucky lucky enough to have Andrew in my living room here while we're, while we're recording this. And your sister came with you uh, because it was kind of in the aftermath of the insurrection. And there was, you know, she just wanted to make sure, look out for you, make sure. You can talk a bit about that. Yeah. You told me that story when we met.
1: Sure. So it's like, uh, I guess because my mom raised me as a single parent. So she only has the two of us. And then I'm also like a first generation uh, undergrad and graduate student. So I think a lot of like Asian people invest in their children. That's where the money's at. Growing their children, making them successful and having that investment pay off. So I think my mom was worried that with the insurrection, with the whole situation, once in the U.S., you know, I might be attacked or I might be, you know, be a victim of a hate crime. So that's why my sister came along to just make sure that there's the two of us to help each other out throughout the transition process.
2: Excellent. Is she going to be here for the duration of your stay or is she just here for a little bit?
1: Uh, she's just here for a little bit, but she. Um, I'm probably going back to Indonesia this May for my summer internship, so she'll probably go back then, and I'll come back here on my own.
2: Gotcha. Nice. So, what do you like better, New Zealand or Indonesia?
1: New Zealand, hands down. There, there's more <laughs> sheep than people, right?
2: <laughs> and they squash coronavirus like a bug.
1: Yeah, like I have like this really fond memory of mine growing up, where we would trade like fruits that we grew in our own house, you know. So my neighbor had like plum trees. We had like orange and lemon trees and we just exchanged baskets of like fruits
2: for no good reason. That's excellent, man. Sounds fun.
3: Yeah. New Zealand is really on my bucket. This is a place I want to go. It's funny. I've met, My parents met in Sydney, but I've never been to Australia or New Zealand. The furthest I've got is actually Indonesia. I did the 14 hour flight from London to Jakarta. And then hopped one more into over to Bali. That was two years ago. I went on holiday there. Although it definitely felt like there were more Australians in Bali than anyone else.
0: Andrew, were you there when the Christchurch earthquake happened?
1: Uh, no, I was already back in Jakarta, but I think my aunt's house, like, was part of like, like the earthquake. But I think the insurance system in New Zealand was great. I think she upgraded her house afterwards.
0: That's great, yeah. Because I had a friend who had a lot of family there and it was just devastating for her. So good to know that you weren't there.
2: This is a question for both of you. I'll throw it to Andrew first. Why Why'd you guys choose Georgetown?
1: So I think the, the reason why I chose Georgetown was because you know Georgetown is the intersection of business, government, and politics. It's it's right there in the center. So that's why one of the reasons I chose it. But also because I think the Jesuit value is true. So during the interview for Georgetown, they asked me you know why, and I told them because you guys are the nicest. That's a you know weird answer, but genuinely when you look at other MBA programs. They're, they seem to come up very competitive, you know. They're very hardcore. Everyone wants to succeed. A plus, like A type people, but Georgetown, they were like collaboration is key. You know, crew our personalities. You want to help each other out. If you know, as the tide rises, the whole ship rises alongside with it. So I think that's why I chose Georgetown because it's nice.
0: Excellent, yeah. Um, for me, so obviously DC has its appeal. It's it's been amazing uh, being here, like especially during the whole presidential transition. Um, because I come from the world of news. But one of the biggest reasons I chose Georgetown was actually because of its rigorous academic program and the fact that it actually has quant core classes, which I know not all MBA programs do. And so like if it had been up to me to form my schedule, like I would not have thought about taking accounting or statistics classes, but here I am already having done a lot of those things thanks to the school. And I think it's like really definitely pushed me out of my comfort zone, but I want the training. want to have more confidence in my quantitative abilities now yeah and I do think that I have that confidence after nearly a year because I am a total literature geek my favorite book in the third grade was uh, Jane Eyre so that just shows like how much I hate math Um, but yeah here I am like I feel more confident in like running excel spreadsheets and doing financial modeling, so go Georgetown.
3: I can definitely relate. I was a liberal arts major. (laughs) I can safely say I'm out of my comfort zone in finance and stats and accounting, but I agree. I think that's that's the thing that an MBA gives you. It's just like quantitative literacy, the ability to know what you're talking about when when you're presented with a spreadsheet. I
0: feel you on that, Christine.
2: So. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I wanted to pivot back for a second. So, Andrew, you said you're going back to Indonesia for your summer position. Could you tell us about what you got going on this summer? Yeah,
1: so I'm working at a P consulting firm led by the former Minister of Trade Indonesia, as well as the former uh, Chairman of the Investment Coordinating Board. And so, what he does is he manages, like, sort of like an endowment fund from, like, I think, Stanford, Duke like over 500 million and he invests that into like good Indonesian startups. And so that's what I'll be doing this uh,
2: summer. Sounds awesome. And, and Christine, are you settled in a position yet this summer?
0: So I have been actually working as Prashant's research assistant for, for a project he's doing on early career leadership. And so not only are we writing a book and a Harvard Business Review case, we're also aiming to form a course at McDonough that hopefully our class will also be able to enjoy sometime soon. So, yeah, I think that's what I'll continue doing in the summer. I'm really excited about it. It's been a fun experience so far.
2: I bet. How how did you score that?
0: Um, So actually, it was the other way around. So Prashant reached out to me in November asking me if I would be interested in helping him with the project. And, you know, it's a great opportunity. You get to meet so many people because we're interviewing anywhere from 15 to 20 employees at uh, major companies like McKinsey, Citibank, even the Army. And yeah, I've learned so much. And so that's, yeah, that's how I came about getting the role.
2: And I presume your your background in journalism helped with that and your transition into the MBA career?
0: Yep, absolutely. Yep.
2: Can you just talk about like that journalism experience and, and what you think most relates to the MBA and, and how it's helped you?
0: Um, I think so from my 10-year career in journalism has definitely helped me to really grow my EQ, lots of empathy, because I know everyone has a story despite like the faith they might put on. And so I think that's really helped me relate to a lot of the friends that I've made at business school. And also like switching beats, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it can be hard. Like you're switching from one issue to another if while you have no background knowledge on it. So you have to really ramp up your, your learning skills and your knowledge on that particular issue. So for example, so when I transitioned from being a politics reporter to an economic and financial market reporter. it was really tough for me because I had no background knowledge on the economy whatsoever. Like my knowledge, my working knowledge on interest rates was the rate that I got uh, in my bank account. And so, <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely a bit of a learning curve there. I think it took me a good year to actually like get myself like really uh, adjusted to writing stories. On bonds, stocks, and talking about bonds that really helped me in Pinkowitz's finance class for sure. And yeah, I think those are the things that really helped me transition from journalism to business school. But I do have to remind you that there was a, another transition in between those two things because I did work for Samsung for two years before Georgetown. And that also helped, you know, learning about the private sector, how major corporations work, you know everything that we learned in SGI basically and supply chain, that sort of thing. I think it's all like my previous career has pretty much paid off like in the whole experience so far at Georgetown.
3: And Christine, did you switch beats while you were at Reuters? I did like two little like summer internships at Reuters when I was uh, still in my first year of undergrad and that, that place is It's really a place to learn. The the tools they've got, the the analytics, everything there's it's amazing. So did you did you make that switch while you were there at Royce's?
0: Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Yeah, it was really tough (laughs) to, yeah. But I, like, one of the things that really helped me was I really used my newbie status to learn new things. Like, you know, just call up policymakers at the central bank and say, hey, I don't know this stuff about, like, base rates and GDP. (laughs) Please tell me, uh, please teach me. And, like, it wasn't sensitive information. So they were really, really um, eager to teach me stuff. And I made a lot of good sources and acquaintances along the way. Like some of them, even today, I really look to for advice as mentors.
3: Amazing. My sister just started a, a role. She's been a freelance journalist for years now. With a, um, Her her beat was Greece, you know, issues to do with the immigration crisis. Yeah, down there. So she was spending a lot of time down there reporting on, yeah, the, the troubles they were facing there. But she's just recently taken a, taken a desk job at the FT. So it's oh, quite- Oh,
2: amazing.
3: Yeah, it's been interesting for me to see her pivot from, you know, just being freelance and, you know, you know
0: Oh, that's kind of, great.
3: Yeah, like work, working to the beat of her own drum and kind of writing articles on what she wanted to do to now switching for the first time to like a, a desk job for like an amazing institution. But Oh
0: for sure. Yes. Yeah, no, yeah. Yes. I have yeah, I have a few friends at the FT and yeah, they're they're really great. Yeah.
3: yeah.
0: Oh, congratulations to your sister. That's that's amazing.
3: She's smashing it. She's doing so good. I'm so proud of her. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you must be. I'm so glad.
2: Is that the same sister that used to play uh play music? Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Maddie. Yeah. She's yeah. She's got many, many strings to her bow. She used to play open mics in Borough Market in London all the time. Um and then she was in a band for a while. And that kind of overlapped with her journalism career. But then yeah, she she put down the guitar and picked up the pen full time. So yeah, she's doing well.
2: I wanted to stay with you, Christine, for a minute. Uh, A few weeks ago, a month ago now or something, you wrote a community-wide memo about the anti-Asian hate crimes that have been happening in our country of late. And I just wanted to ask you about that. That must have taken tremendous courage to share that with the whole community at large and, and, and really stand up for what you believe in. And I just wanted to peek into your mindset in the motivations to write that and how it came about and and why you ultimately decided to to publish it
0: yeah first of all i just want to give a a shout out to all the student organizations who helped make it happen you know without their support i don't think it would have gotten the attention that it did but yeah to bring you back on my thinking So when the Atlanta shooting occurred, I thought there would be an immediate uh, natural response from the school um, in support of its Asian American students, Asian AAPI students in general. But days passed, you know, this was, we were in our ILE week. I was looking out for something, but basically nothing, like radio silence from the school. And I kept getting frustrated and I think it was, I don't remember the exact number of days after the shooting, but I was talking to another Asian student at the school and i was like you know this is i think this is wrong i think some someone should say something and so that's how it all came about it actually happened within a day so i got the idea in the morning like very early in the morning and then like started pitching it to other students and then it kind of snowballed from there like oh let's get this club in let's get this club in so we got um a total of 10 affinity clubs involved in signing the statement And Andrew was also very instrumental in getting it out. Thank you for that, Andrew. And so that's how it happened. We got it out late in the afternoon.
2: And I heard that from this memo, you got a meeting with Prashan and Michael O'Leary. What came of that meeting?
0: So we had a good discussion. I think a lot of it uh, was Asian student leaders sharing their experiences on race-fueled hate crimes or aggression, acts of aggression. Um, either in the DC area or wherever they are right now. And we also heard from the school about efforts they're making to make the school more diverse and inclusive. And so I honestly like to tell you, I didn't have huge expectations. Like it's not, it wasn't, the statement wasn't going to have earth shattering changes. My expectations were low because that's how the world works everything works in baby steps and that's what i've been appreciative to everyone who's helped me so far who's reached out that we're now like getting this conversation started people are having more conversations learning about historical events that have happened in the past like the murder of vincent Chin. even you and i like the four of us are having this conversation right now so these are things that i really appreciate um yeah, after the statement went but we really need more done that's for sure
3: well yeah I was I was going to add just off the back of that last comment I'd love to know um you know perhaps you've kind of touched on what the school has started to do and started to get its act together and talking about this issue but I'd love to know kind of what the school could be doing better and focusing on and you know maybe pointers for you know classmates as well and you know if you could speak to that that'd be great
0: of course yeah happy to I think one thing that was mentioned during the meeting was possible changes to the curriculum that could be made. So for example, one would be like for SGI, we could have more global uh, companies mentioned rather than us based companies, you know, make, make the curriculum content a little more diverse. So that was one thing. Another was basically we urged the school to take quick action when it comes to these sorts of events, because students are like, this kind of communication is really important when it comes to student morale, or the, you know, the general vibe of the student community, for the school leadership to say something like that, to let them know, hey, we have your back, we see what, what's happening right now. And we respect your opinions, you know, just even saying that, and not just handing you a list of, hey, this is where you get mental health, You know, would help immensely for the students that are affected and not just AAPI students, but for other people, you know, people of color, people in the LGBTQ community. And so, yeah, I think one one thing I think the school could do much better would be, be a little more proactive on its communication campaigns.
2: And I want to bring uh, Andrew in here as co-president of the Asian Business Consortium. Like you know, it's, it's a business school and business focused club, but how do you see your role and your club's role in, you know, helping the school get better at these things that Christine touched on and just raising awareness for the racism that's happening, not just Asian community, but the people of color and, and, the, and the LGBTQ community?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So I, I think the Asia Business Consortium is sort of like, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier about being a third culture kid. It's a club for the other Asians that do not fall into the big categories of like the Korean Association, Japanese Association, uh, Greater China, uh, Saba as well, the South Asian. So ABC is sort of like a home to all these different Asians who don't fall into those big groups. And then I think when Christine reached out to me regarding making the statement, uh, I was actually just like dealing, I think two, three weeks ago after the mandatory bystander leadership training that we had to do. Where you know we're taught to like intervene in situations where people are being inconsiderate, people are being racist to be inclusive. After that training, I went out to dinner to Chinatown with my sister, and then on the way back, we saw like a homeless person, like a Caucasian homeless person, start harassing this uh, Korean couple who was lining up to buy like a bubble tea. And then at that moment, you know, as an international student who just arrived, I think not like two three weeks. I knew what I had to do in terms of my training that I had to like you know either distract the person, de-escalate the situation or you know be in the middle of it to prevent further harassment but I was just like frozen. I I, I and then thankfully a, a jogger came by, like an American jogger. She came by, she intervened, she told the guy, you can't say that to her, to these people, you know. And then eventually it de-escalated and the whole situation subsided. But the whole time going home, I, I came with a feeling of powerlessness and like feeling like I should have done something. And when, when Christine reached out and you know made that statement, I actually, you know, told the school as well that I think international students who come here, they're not necessarily prepared for what to do in terms of harassment. And then finding out that other students were also harassed, either in the metro, subway, or like on the street. I think the school is trying to go there where they want to prepare international students with better skills to mitigate these kinds of situations.
2: That's that's really interesting. I had never thought of that. Like you're, you, cause you feel like a stranger in a strange land, right? And then, you know, throwing you in the mix of something where you're not fully comfortable in, in the society yet. I think
1: overall, just like being an international student we don't necessarily know our rights arriving here. I mean, the whole visa process is scary where we want to like, you know recruit full time as well for jobs. We don't want to like, you know, be like having, like I don't know, like a track record or criminal record here in the U.S. So ha- having the school explain our rights and then teaching us, you know, what we can do to be more quote unquote American, where we pursue social justice, where we pursue fairness, that'll be great because we all definitely want to contribute more, but we just don't know whether we can.
2: Yeah, it's a super scary experience coming to a foreign country as someone who's traveled abroad going to other countries, when you first get there, it's like, you know, like you almost feel like your head's spinning because it's, it's so new and different and, and you got to get your feet under you a little bit before you can settle in. Um, And I want to throw this next question out to both of you guys, you know, beyond engaging further with AAPI students to elevate and amplify those students' stories and, and voices, are there any thought leaders that, that you could point the community to to pay attention to to educate themselves more on these issues
1: I, I know there's like a book and podcast on like asian minority regarding i think there's a whole uh, lawsuit going against harvard right where affirmative action was discriminatory to asian minorities mm-hmm. but other than that you know it, it's not I, I think because it's so new and we're just following this i'm not really aware of any thought
3: leaders and maybe that's the problem right it's kind of yeah it's symptomatic of the fact that this is not a well-covered issue. It's not, frankly speaking, a well-understood issue. I think that's self-evident in what's happened over the last two months. But yeah, from my perspective, Andrew, like going back to, you know, when you told me about how, you know, your mum was worried about you when you came here and your sister accompanied you, that kind of broke my heart because, you know, while I'm not someone who's really had to de- deal with anything like this, I'm also an immigrant to this country. And I see, like, the the process that you, you know, there was that course we did in canvas where you're told you know this is how you're supposed to act as an immigrant in this country this is you know what you can expect might happen to you there should be much more effort on the on behalf of the school to really prepare people coming to this country and i know yeah it's yeah christine as well i don't know if you want to if you if you are ready to share or feel like sharing your own story about some of the you know, some of the trouble that you've experienced while you were here. I'm sure that I'm sure that influenced your decision to pen the letter, right?
0: Yeah, Sam, I, I think I know what event you're talking about, because I did put it on social media after it happened. But uh, yeah, like, I don't know, a couple months ago, over the weekend, my husband and I, we, we were walking to a lunch appointment uh, near George uh, Washington University, when a white man, like he was approaching us, took one look at us, like frown and then suddenly whipped out a megaphone from his jacket. Lord knows where he, like where he was carrying it. But anyway, started blaring this siren at us. It was so loud. And like it was very apparent that he like he was targeting us because he started following us a little bit as well. And it it totally freaked me out. He wasn't being physically violent or anything, but it was not it was just amazing to me that something like that could happen in DC. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't know what to do about it rather than just quickly walk away and like try to put as much distance as possible between us and that man. So, yep, that's one thing. And, and on the thought leaders, yeah, I totally agree. I think there's not just, there's not one single person that we can look to or like a group um, that we can turn to right now, which I think is unfortunate. I know there are a lot of like grassroots movements going on, like on social media and stuff, but... For, for me i've been talking to a lot of my journalist friends who are also you know who live their lives in different countries including the united states and getting their opinions and and just like using each other as sounding boards which has been helpful for me
2: thanks for sharing your story christine that's i'm sorry you went through that that's that's brutal
0: yeah I, I, yeah it was very odd yeah it just happened out of nowhere
2: uh, yeah like where do you Whip out a megaphone.
0: <laughs> I know. i didn't <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. That guy was carrying that huge thing around in his jacket in the first place. Yeah.
2: <laughs> People are crazy. Yeah. What can I say? You can't make this I mean, stuff up. Yeah.
0: It,
3: it, yeah. It would be. Yeah. It's fu- it's funny on one hand, but then it would be funny if it wasn't. You know, so endemic. It's it's crazy. It's just as you said. I know. It's not something you can. It's not something you can feasibly imagine would happen because you you know you think oh, it couldn't happen here, not in DC, not in civilized, you know, Georgetown area, but yeah, it's,
0: yeah. Yeah. And I remember Sam actually reached out to me on Instagram after I posted about it and he was like, oh, why, why don't you tell like a student government uh, <clears throat> about it, like tell someone at school. But at the time I was like, but you know, how would, how would that help? Not saying that you guys are like doing nothing, but you know, I felt, you know, people elsewhere are having a way tougher time than me. Like, is it worth voicing this uh, to a wider audience? So that was my thinking at that point. But I guess, yeah, definitely things escalated from there (laughs) up to the statement, yeah.
3: And I think that's part of the problem when things like that, you know, no matter how like, you know, innocuous it is, you know, people will end up trying to put it in context, trying to decide whether is this verbal attack, this harassment, is it worth reporting? Am I worth it? I think these are all some of the issues that one, one has to deal with when these kind of things happen. And I think, part of what the university needs to do is make it clear that, yes, absolutely, this is unacceptable. Absolutely, there should be a place you can report it to. And, you know, this is going to be some of the ways that we can help you guys in the AAPI community and and others. You know, I was
1: going to add, I think it's also partly Asian culture for us to like internalize conflict or internalize problem. We we weren't like, I think it's more Western to vocalize your concerns or if you've been hurt and, you know, uh, seek uh, redemption sort of like by vocalizing it. Asian culture, it's more internalized and we sort of like figure things out on our own. So I think that's also, there's a, that big difference as well. So f- giving us these different platforms to, you know, speak up, you know, share your problems. We're we're more like, okay, but we're solution-based. How does that resolve the problem? How does that, I mean, you don't know who harassed us. We, won't, we don't know who harassed us. We might not see them again. And it's such a random occurrence. So I think it's more of a systematic problem that has to be addressed.
2: Yeah, Christine, in your statement, you you mentioned model minority. Is that similar to what Andrew's talking about? I'd never heard that phrase before. I thought that was interesting. Like, is that tracking for you? Am I on the right path or am I completely off the mark?
0: No, well, I I am kind of surprised that you haven't heard the term, but I guess, yeah, because you aren't. Asian, I guess. Yeah, but we, I think Andrew and I, yeah, we have definitely, definitely faced that, you know, Asians are seen as successful. Even at school, you know, elementary, middle school, oh, Asian kids have good grades. They're good at math, you know, basic stereotypes like that. And I feel people don't see us like we're basically invisible because, oh, we know that you guys will do well anyway in society because you guys have always been success- successful. So you guys don't need additional help. Like, why should we when there are other people suffering? I think that's the basic mentality in which people yeah see us actually. And so does that explain a little bit?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and, and I guess Andrew's point kind of builds on that sort of The way I interpret it. So yeah, but thanks for clearing that up. I think that's pretty important.
1: I can actually go further. And like, I think the whole concept of like model minority, like a lot, this is what happened in Indonesia as well, where, when we had the Dutch occupation, they pitted the natives, Indonesian natives against the Chinese, like the Chinese Indonesian. They said they look at, you know, Chinese Indonesians, they're a smaller population, they're hardworking, they're successful. And then by pitting the minorities against each, each other, they were the Dutch took advantage of that division. When in, in reality, all minorities should be supportive of, of each other. You know, we talk about allyship, we talk about helping each other, but at the same time, Asians get a lot of hate for succeeding, get a lot of hate for working hard because, you know, you should be a minority like us, you should be uh, being oppressed. But obviously we've figured out ways to sort of, work with the system, be quiet, put our heads down, work even harder than our peers. But that's sort of like a detriment to us now, because people expect all Asians to be like that. We, we shouldn't voice our problems. We shouldn't complain.
2: Yeah. And then, and then flipping it back to the Georgetown community and in your role with the ABC consortium. So can you just talk about how you've cultivated a sense of social justice and camaraderie across such a diverse group and just kind of piggybacking off that thought, because I never thought about it until you brought it up, how we have all these Asian specific clubs. And then there's this ABC club that is, you know, I guess in a sense, some of the purpose there is to bring all the Asian students together. So can you just talk about that and how you've, how you're approaching helping bring all these voices together?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, when I came into the ABC, it was sort of like a it's really small club. We have like, I think, 25 members. Uh, we had a hard time finding someone to step up to be our VP. Fortunately, I got a good friend of mine, Rock Lee. I'm not sure which cohort.
2: Rock, yeah. He's a Saxa. He's in he's in my cohort.
1: Okay. Yeah. I got Rock Lee to join and be VP with me. And our strategy so far for like ABC has been, we'll just have a really great time between the both of us and other people will eventually join. And it has worked out well. Like Just recently, we had a Showing of a Disney Plus movie Raya, which was like inspired by Southeast Asia, and we sent out like snacks uh, to everyone's home. We got the program office to send it all the way to Taiwan, India. It was just a fun event where we talked about you know the Southeast Asian culture, movies, and being represented in you know Hollywood. But overall, I think what we're trying to do with the ABC Club is making sure that people who aren't you know necessarily nationalists who aren't who don't identify as a certain race but they're global citizen they have a fun place to talk to and we try to be as supportive as possible if they feel like their their voices aren't being heard in the other bigger clubs and then so we just try to have that small little group to help
2: and there's another thing i wanted to piggyback off from your previous point about the history there with between the dutch and the chinese indonesians and the natives has that kind of stay true throughout time, whether it's someone pitting minorities against one another or within the Asian community, like, are there challenges between advocating for, say, Korean advocacy or Indonesian ad- advocacy? And do they butt heads at any time? Or, you know, are like, is there a rivalry there? I'm just trying to understand that piece of it, because you brought it up with that historical example.
1: Yeah, I think it was like, in the past, a lot like that. But now that you know, we're more interconnected, people are more like, aware of the different norms, different culture, People are just generally better people or they try to be better people instead of like you know, taking advantage, taking advantage of the division, the oppression. So I, I think there has been a significant improvement, but there is still a tendency, I think, for governments in general to sort of villainize certain minority groups to just make sure that the blame is shifted when in reality, creating that division doesn't help us. It it does get you votes, it does get you popular support because you have this mentality of like mm-hmm. us against them. And that really works psychologically, right? Like saying team A, team but at the same time, we should be like one whole team and working together rather than having that division.
0: Yeah. If I could just add to that, like in the MSB student community, there are like such few of us. Of course, there could be some butting heads between the clubs for Chinese students, Korean students, and Japanese students because of all the history going on between those three countries. But there are so few of us, it's like pointless and meaningless to engage in any of that, honestly. And I felt that Asian students have been really, really supportive in hearing each other out, um, supporting each other in classes even, because we're all basically going through the same thing together. And I think Asians can even be stronger because we're all part of this giant continent. and we should be supporting each other rather than ignoring um, people from the other countries because, oh, I'm not Indonesian, oh, I'm not Korean. I think that's just uh, meaningless right now.
1: And I, I just like to add one last thing. I think we should differentiate between what the governments of these countries do and the people, because you know, like for example, the Chinese government and the Chinese people, they're not one and the same. Just because you're a Chinese person doing your MBA in, in Georgetown, you don't necessarily you endorse the Chinese government views. And the people should be
3: able to distinguish between that.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah.
3: I think that really gets the heart of some of the racism and some of the past government's attempts at dividing people in the wake of Corona and in the wake of, as you say, not being allowed to separate yeah. you know, a nation from its people, etc. I think that's a really good
0: yeah. point. Yeah. A classmate at MSB told me that someone asked them if they were a member of, uh, if they were a Chinese spy, or like whether they were a member of the Communist Party of China. Yeah, that's not cool.
2: That was, that was a fellow student asking a Chinese MBA student if they were a spy and part of the Chinese communist. That's, that's insane.
0: That's our reality.
2: (laughs) And it, and it wasn't joke. Like, I mean, that's not a joke, but like, I, that's, that's crazy.
0: Like the tone was jokey, but, even if it was a joke, I don't think it was appropriate at all. I think joke
3: or not, it just goes to show how pernicious this the this dialogue from the previous administration, you know. I'm not I'm not even gonna, you know, dignify the previous administration with repeating some of the things that were said at a very high level,
2: you know. You can
0: say but, his name, Sam.
3: <laughs> I, I, I'd rather not, Christine. Okay. <laughs> i'm glad no one has to say his name anymore <laughs>
2: the big orange blob yeah
0: exactly
3: you know and it's it's just you know just horrifying some of the diatribes that were coming coming from the white house coming from people still in power in the congress uh, and as i say it just you know that's that's the direct result that's how pernicious this kind of racism this kind of ignorance can be that it ends up on the msb campus it's it's it really blows me away yeah
2: yeah
0: and it's reflected like in the Thing that happened with georgetown law as well it's it's here it's yeah 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 it's very unfortunate but that is our reality
3: yeah and that example more than anything goes to show that actually yeah it's it has been here it is here and you know it shouldn't take a hot mic on a zoom to root it out yeah. absolutely absolutely
2: I'll throw this out to both of you guys. Besides, uh, I'll start with Christine. Your work with Prashant and helping craft a new course here at MSB. Is there anything else that you're working on that that you'd like to publicize and promote?
0: Yeah. So I am like, I have taken on a bunch of roles. I'm like P of Comms for the Tech Club, also a student ambassador. You know, RA for Prashant, like I just mentioned. But I think through all those roles, I think. My goal is just to energize people get them motivated to do things that they wouldn't have normally before coming to business school because having worked straight for 12 years, I know that this time in my life will never come back and I just want to get myself out there as much as possible and I want all of you to do the same because I know for most of us this is probably the last time we're going to be in school unless you're going to get another master's degree or a PhD. Yeah, that's something I'm working on, helping my fellow classmates do, to do, yeah.
3: And I'd like I'd like to know whether I can take that leadership elective in Mod 1 in the fall. That sounds awesome. I definitely wanna sign up to that. Is it gonna be ready?
0: I, I doubt it's gonna be ready. There's so much work to be done. I don't think it's gonna happen in the fall, but we'll see, like hopefully before we graduate. I don't know. I don't know if it's actually going to be an MBA course or, or a course for undergrad students. Yeah, it's very promising. Sounds good, yeah.
2: Will you be able to share any of the research prior to the course actually becoming a thing or the Harvard business case coming out?
0: So we haven't pinpointed exactly what the end results will be from the research. But if I'm allowed to, then, yeah, I'd be happy to share. But I don't think I have uh, anything you know specific to share right now as it's still a work in progress.
2: Absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to the findings whenever they are ready for sure. And same question to Andrew.
1: I think other than being VP for the Asian Business Consortium, I'm also like, like helping with the communications for the Business Government Alliance, uh, as Sam mentioned, Estefania. I'm helping her sort of like make sure that I think in addition to like being aware of business, you're also aware of like the government role in business. Also, in addition to that, I am VP of Internal Affairs for the whole Indonesian Student Association in the whole US. So we're like 8,000 students strong. And I think dealing with the API hate there has also given me a lot of perspective with the with, with API in MSB. But I think having spent my first semester virtual, where I had classes from like eight PM all the way to two AM, and then I had networking events from like three, four, five AM. Knowing that being remote is a challenge and feeling so ex- ex- secluded, but then having people like Juanita, yeah, 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 yeah. reached awesome. out. Yeah. And then having so many of the MSB community reach out to me when I'm so far, and when I got here, they actually met me and I got, and so that's sort of the kind of thing that I want to make sure that people who are still studying remotely, people who, international students who come here and feel like they don't have a friend, I want to make sure that, you know, they get involved and there's that sense of community, even though we're on Zoom.
2: We still need to connect and have that sports analytics chat that we were trying to pin down in the fall. I didn't forget about you, bud. We're, yeah. we're going to make it happen for sure i wanted to ask uh so we're all first years here and i was just curious to hear where you see yourself this time next year and what you hope to be stepping into once we leave msb
0: um for me like i i love tech i would love to stay in the industry in some function or another hopefully incorporating some of the wonderful skill sets that i've learned at Georgetown so far so that's where I see myself.
2: What kind of function?
0: So I think as an international student you can't make too hard of a pivot I've noticed and that's the advice that I've gotten from alumni as well so I'm looking to either stay in like strategic communications risk management you know because that's what I was doing um, back at Samsung or maybe like a project management role that would be awesome so that's what I'm trying to yeah, make my way into for the next year or so.
3: It's interesting these that, that, Christine. I can definitely relate to the idea that as an international student, you definitely can't pivot in the way that you might want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the the companies that you can apply to are are a much narrower. I don't think I'd really given it enough thought or really appreciated that when I came
2: into it. Andrew, how about you?
1: Yeah, for me, I
2: think this time
3: next year,
1: I'd probably like hope that I've, you know. After the internship, I have a better picture of what consulting is going to look like. I'm a huge advocate for like data analytics, big data, and making sure that we derive decisions from that. So I hope that I'll take an, a strategic consulting role in those fields.
2: Nice. Well, I wanna thank each of you guys for joining us here. Any parting words for the community in helping us get better at, at supporting you guys, your your causes and your community and just Raising awareness. Anything to just end on? I'll throw it to both you guys.
0: Yeah, I can go first. First of all, like thanks again for having us and shedding light on some of the stuff that we did like in this past several weeks. But I would like for this conversation that we had today to just continue, like keep going. Yeah, not let it end as a one-off thing. So I would like for you guys, you know, both Sam and Mike, to like keep it going for the rest of us here at MSB. And yeah, super appreciate um, all the questions that you have for us today.
1: And then for me, thanks also, Mike and Sam, for having us here. But I think for me, the message would be like, I heard some students have barely met anyone, even though they're in DC. They've they've like met probably two or three people because they take it for granted, you know, that you're in DC or the city. Uh, I I would just like to encourage the community to just reach out. And, you know, if you have problems or anything, talk to your friend set up that date for the hangout. Don't be like me and Mike, where we keep on postponing and pushing. You know, like in a year from now, we'll be graduating. We won't have that chance to meet all these incredible people that were selected by Georgetown. So make the most out of it.
3: Go out, meet those people, make that connection. It'll be rewarding, trust me. I'm I'm just super looking forward to, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record, but I'm so pleased that a lot of us are still gonna be in DC. You know, as VP of Social, I'm really going to ensure that we can start meeting up in person. I just can't wait for that first in-person kegs. Uh, we can all just drink one or eight beers together on campus. It's going to be great. Sounds good. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Special thanks to Christine Kim, Andrew Mulya, joining us here on the Roundtable edition of McDonough Talks. Thank you for your time, guys. And thanks for sharing your stories. We appreciate you.